the fire broke out near the Circus Maximus. This stone wrought race course and entertainment venue stood in a valley between the Aventine and Palatine hills of Rome. Stocked with highly flammable wares, the wooden shops surrounding the circus went up in minutes, while heavy winds carried the blaze into neighboring districts. Before long, the Inferno was besieging four of the city's seven hills, and the Vigiles, the core tasked with firefighting and upholding public safety, were overwhelmed. Their primary means of combating the flames, buckets of water, proved ineffective. Changing tactics, they tried to level buildings so the rubble could act as barricades to the fire without success. In apocalyptic fashion, the extreme heat, measuring approximately 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit, sprang up and over the barriers and raced along its path of destruction. People fled their homes in droves while others looted in a frenzy. The narrow streets became clogged with a terror-stricken multitude, making it more difficult to escape the conflagration. It raged for nine days, uninterrupted but for a brief respite, leaving two-thirds of the city in ruins. The year was 64 AD, and this was the worst disaster Rome had witnessed in living memory. Soon, rumors spread around the refugee camps that had sprung up in the wake of the catastrophe as to what or who caused it. According to hearsay, torchbearers were seen setting the blaze, and when bystanders demanded they explain themselves, the arsonists claimed to be acting on orders issued from high up. Some rumor mongers even claimed to know who had given the directive, the emperor himself. This was Nero, that fleshy decadent of 27 years who had acceded to the throne just over a decade earlier. In truth, the princeps couldn't have set the fire himself since he was out of town at the time of its eruption. Furthermore, many, probably most modern historians, doubt whether he in any way set the cataclysm in motion. Nevertheless, one of the damning allegations that circulated among the Roman citizenry after the Great Fire has shaped the emperor's reputation to the present day. It accuses Nero of a diabolical act that found expression in blazing technicolor in the 1951 film Quo Vadis, directed by Marvin Leroy and starring Peter Ustinov as the much-abhorred despot. In its most famous sequence, Nero orders Rome razed to the ground so a new city, Nerinopolis, named for and dedicated to him, can be built upon its ashes. Ustinov never stops chewing the scenery even for a second, and boy is he chomping away as Nero watches the firestorm at a safe distance outdoors. Inspired by the hellscape he created, he calls for his lyre and strikes up a tune. With Ustinov's purposefully pitchy and shouty delivery, the emperor sings as flames engulf the city. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. So the saying goes, even though Nero was no fiddler and his infernal aria is probably apocryphal. Strictly speaking, the expression is untrue. Nevertheless, it captures a certain truth. Nero was self-absorbed, and he did have a deplorably warped set of priorities. His art mattered far more to him than his subject's well-being. Last episode, we heard about Nero's rise to power, his burgeoning love of the performing arts, as well as the assassination of his mother, Agrippina. Today, we'll hear about a sprawling conspiracy to assassinate him. As will become evident, both his megalomania and his pursuit of artistic excellence intensified in the wake of his matricide. Both proved pivotal in turning the Roman elite against him, and his murder-a-minute regime ultimately ended with his downfall. This is The Art of Crime, and I'm your host, Gavin Whitehead. Welcome to episode four of Assassins, 
What an Artist Dies in Me, Nero, Part 2. Following the death of Agrippina, Nero undertook a face-saving campaign, hoping to win favor with the lower and middle classes, the plebeians and equites. To that end, he went all out on lavish festivities meant to brighten their lives. One of these even provided him with a platform on which to make his debut as an artist. First came the Ludi Maximi, the Great Games. These unfolded over several days and across multiple theaters. Like other Roman festivals, the Ludi Maximi treated spectators to athletic competitions, artistic performances, and assorted sights unseen. According to one source, an elephant walked a tightrope with a rider astride its back. Likely under duress, noblemen took the unseemly step of singing and dancing on stage while others duked it out with ferocious beasts in gladiatorial games, all these activities long considered undignified and thus unsuited to the nobility. Meanwhile, Nero bombarded audiences with handouts. His troops tossed balls that acted as vouchers into the crowd, redeemable for prizes that included precious metals, horses, slaves, and even entire apartment buildings. Nero was digging deep into his coffers for this one. Next was the Juvenalia, or Youth Festival. This celebration marked a momentous occasion in Nero's maturation, the shaving of his whiskers for the first time. Technically, the Juvenalia was a private event held on imperial lands. Nevertheless, it still drew crowds. As at the Ludi Maximi, aristocrats performed in defiance of social customs. An 80-year-old noblewoman danced a pantomime, the raciest form of popular theater, while other scions of ancient houses took part in choral dances. When they shuffled on stage wearing masks to conceal their identities from the audience at one point, Nero is said to have ordered them to remove them. He meant for his guests to know who was abasing themselves. The host of the party emerged as the star. As discussed in the previous episode, Nero took up Scytherodi, or singing while also playing the lyre, shortly after assuming control of the empire. From the beginning, this avocation rankled his advisors and top politicians. Musicians belonged to the lowest orders of Roman society, and many deemed it offensive for their most high and exalted princeps to stoop to their level. For a few years, they may have found solace in knowing that Nero only practiced in private. But that all changed with the Juvenalia, where for the first time, he would give a concert to an audience. He even presented an original composition, Antis or the Bacchants, a febrile tale of madness and love. Nero made sure his debut went over well. Per his wishes, senior officials expressed their support of his performances as if embracing the idea of a musical princeps. A man named Gallio, brother of Seneca, Nero's tutor, advisor, and surrogate father, played master of ceremonies, introducing the emperor as he strode on stage. Meanwhile, according to ancient chronicler Cassius Dio, Seneca himself, along with Burrus, a praetorian prefect and Nero's other advisor, situated themselves in prominent positions where the audience could see them and nodded and smiled in approbation. Furthermore, in the audience, Nero had planted his freshly assembled phalanx of strongmen cheerleaders known as the Augustiani, Augustus's men. These were not groupies you wanted to mess with. Thuggish, brawny, and fiercely devoted to their employer, they could knock a tooth out if you did anything other than applaud the princeps. Their very presence discouraged dissent. Moreover, 
They clapped their hands in coordinated rhythms and chanted such adulation as, Oh, Apollo, likening the emperor to the patron god of music. By the end of Nero's reign, the Augustiani had mushroomed to number 5,000. Plenty of artists crave validation, and I don't blame them, since it's only natural to want your work praised. That said, I can't think of many who have needed their ego stroked by an army of 5,000 professional fanboys. Without question, Nero was insecure and in desperate need of approval. At least he was on stage. He almost seemed indifferent to whether aristocrats, statesmen, and soldiers approved of his performance as emperor. In addition to Cithrodi, Nero had taken up charioteering. Indeed, toward the end of his life, he would race chariots in competition, more on which later. Much like artists, however, athletes were frowned upon, and this pastime too was seen as beneath him. Yet this was far from his worst offense. Few may have admitted it out loud, but a general uneasiness increased as the princeps grew more brutal and brazen in his abuses of office. By the time of the Great Fire in 64, Nero had taken violent precautions to secure his grip on the throne. As we covered in the previous episode, it was widely taken for granted that only descendants of Rome's inaugural emperor, Caesar Augustus, were eligible to reign. Based on this assumption, Nero commanded the assassination of virtually anyone with so much as a drop of Augustus's blood in his veins to safeguard his position. In another act of cruelty, he banished his first wife, Octavia, to an island and ordered her execution on trumped-up charges of infidelity. Added to Nero's ruthlessness were delusions of grandeur. Nero placed these on spectacular display in the immediate aftermath of the Great Fire. Much of the city needed rebuilding, and reconstruction yielded several improvements. For example, avenues were broadened to avoid the kind of congestion that imperiled residents during the disaster. However, the inferno had damaged Nero's own residence, the Domus Transitoria, and the emperor took advantage of the calamity to build himself a dream palace right in the heart of Rome. It was called the Domus Aurea, the Golden House. Newly widened and reconstructed at a steeper gradient, the Sacra Via, Rome's main thoroughfare, led straight to its entrance. Something of a rustic villa transplanted to the capital, the property encompassed between 125 to 200 acres, with a lake on its grounds. Nero's ancient biographer Suetonius details the opulence of the estate, though perhaps embellishing his description. According to him, jewels and gold adorned the two-story compound, and devices showered perfume and flowers from the walls inside the dining rooms. At the center of the mansion stood an octagonal chamber with a domed ceiling, probably a sumptuous banquet hall. Overhead, a whirligig installation powered by slaves represented the heavens. Finally, Nero commissioned the construction of a bronze colossus standing more than 100 feet tall, with the aim of erecting it outside the front door. You don't need me to tell you whom the statue depicted. Rome's most splendiferous emperor, of course, Nero himself. In a word, it was extra. Worse still, according to critics, the Golden House threatened to bankrupt the state. Nero's excesses almost certainly troubled Seneca. At the very least, they flew in the face of Stoic principles. Like others in his philosophical school, Seneca cared little for wealth and high living, or at least his writings would give that impression. As many modern-day scholars have noted, however, Seneca amassed a fortune throughout his career, and he lived more comfortably than many of his countrymen. 
Still, the exorbitant luxury of the golden house may well have struck him as distasteful. Furthermore, the moral philosopher had written voluminously about the merits of virtue. Since Nero's accession, Seneca had watched at close range as the emperor plowed deeper and deeper into depravity. In some cases, whether out of loyalty or fear of repercussions, Seneca joined him on this sordid course, dirtying his own moral character in the process. Most grave of all, Nero had sought his and Burrus's counsel the night of his matricide in March of 59 AD, panicking after the first assassination attempt failed. Seneca had done nothing to save Agrippina. Instead, he had quizzed Burrus whether he could order a Praetorian strike on her residence. Then, after the homicide, he ghostwrote a letter defending the crime for Nero to deliver before the Senate. Seneca sought retirement in the mid to late 60s. Maybe disappointment in failing to live up to his own avowed values motivated this decision. Maybe he felt complicit in Nero's offenses. Maybe he worried that cleaving too close to the out-of-control princeps would endanger his own life. Or maybe he reckoned that his son had simply set at court. Burrus passed away in 62 AD, after which Seneca's influence withered. Whatever the case, Seneca twice asked Nero's permission to retire, once in 62 and again in 64. Both times the emperor declined his request. All the same, Seneca withdrew from public life, spending more and more time outside Rome at his country estates and occupying himself with contemplation and study. His was a life of peace and quiet. These were harder to come by in Rome. In the spring of 65, a group of conspirators prepared to rise up in arms against Nero, the single greatest threat to his ascendancy to date. The plotters, both men and women, spanned the whole social spectrum, from politicians to soldiers, highborn to low. Their grievances were many. Some pledged allegiance out of personal grudges against the princeps. Others were disgusted by his stage career. Still others balked at his mismanagement of state funds. Many could not forgive him for the assassination of Agrippina. Seeking a princeps who could take control once the conspirators had booted Nero from the throne, they alighted on an affable aristocrat named Gaius Calpurnius Piso. This choice was a bold one because Piso bore no relation to Caesar Augustus. However, as alluded to already, the rules of succession were not hardened fast. Yes, Nero and his three imperial predecessors had descended from Augustus, but no law had mandated this. The conspirators decided it was worth the gamble to test this norm and install Piso. The conspiracy revved its engine for a while without going anywhere. It had a future leader in Piso, but at present the would-be assassins lacked leadership. Then, one of the confederates, Epicarus, a whip-smart freedwoman and a courtesan in service to Seneca's brother, Aeneas Mela, took it upon herself to push the plot forward. She had traveled to Campania on business one day when she paid a visit to the naval squadron at Misenum. Members of this unit had aided Nero in the hit on Agrippina. One of them often grumbled that he had never received an adequate reward for his efforts. He chanced to vent his frustrations to Epicarus, who saw an opportunity to strengthen the conspiracy. If he could bring his fellow sailors on board, Epicarus promised, she would see to it that he was rewarded. The enticement backfired. The mariner betrayed Epicarus to Nero, who summoned her for questioning, whereupon she denied any involvement in a plot. She hadn't named any of her accomplices, and nobody could furnish evidence of the conspiracy. 
Nevertheless, Nero sensed danger and held Epicarus in detention. Her misstep put the emperor on guard. The Pisonians appear to have thought they could still bring off the plot if they acted fast. On April 19th, Nero had plans to attend the closing ceremonies of an annual religious festival at the Circus Maximus, the fire damage from nine months prior already repaired. A consul delegate called Lateranus would make the first move as the emperor neared the racetrack. Able to get close to him by virtue of his office, he would kneel before the princeps and take him by the knees, as if to make a personal appeal. Then, without warning, he would tighten his grip, restricting Nero's movement. Next, a stick-in-the-mud senator, Flavius Scyvenus, would make political history by stabbing the emperor, prompting other knifemen to fall on their target. The same basic ploy had served the assassins of Julius Caesar well in 44 BC. Scyvenus had procured a sacred dagger for the slaying and kept it enshrined in a temple near his home. The night of April 18th, he directed his freedman, Malichus, to sharpen and polish the blade as well as to assemble a first aid kit of bandages and tourniquets, presumably to treat any injuries Scyvenus sustained. These instructions looked sketchy to Malichus's wife, whose name the historians have not recorded. Something earth-shaking was about to go down, she suspected something other members of the household knew about. Hoping for a handsome reward, she persuaded Malichus to seek a private audience with Nero, and after he had done so, he produced the wedded dagger as evidence of what appeared to be a conspiracy. Skyvenus found himself before Nero in short order, swearing up and down that he had no part in a plot against his life. He was soon joined by Natalis, another conspirator whom Malichus's wife had seen in Skyvenus's company. The two men were taken to separate rooms and interrogated. Their accounts of recent conversations between them differed markedly, arousing suspicion. Instruments of torture were laid out before them, and it was all over. Knowing their captors would flay them alive or scorch them with hot irons, both confessed, naming key allies. So began the bloodbath. The first order of business was to round up the traitors. Disquiet crept across the capital as guards fanned out and surveilled the populace. Watchmen took up posts on the Servian Wall, visible to anyone who looked that direction, as well as along the Tiber River, keeping an eye peeled for those who might try to escape by boat. Praetorians dragged conspirators out of their homes, restrained by manacles. A teeming mass of detainees accumulated outside the Imperial Palace, too many in number for the torture chambers to hold them all. One by one, the rebels fell. It was Natalis who disclosed Piso's involvement in the conspiracy. When Piso discovered the plot was done for, he shut himself up in his home and slashed his wrists just as soldiers were approaching his doorstep. Meanwhile, the Greek freedwoman Epicaris had remained in Nero's custody, and he ordered her torture in hope of extracting more information. Her tormentors burned her with red-hot plates and stretched her body on the rack, certain the agony would loosen her lips. Stunningly, it didn't. On April 20th, the torturers brought her to a solitary cell, her body so broken that she had to be carried on a chair. After they left her unattended, however, she fought through the pain and managed to remove her breastband, knot it into a noose, and hang herself from the bars propping up the canopy of a chair. The body count skyrocketed. Nero's purge left so many dead that Roman historian Tacitus refrains from listing all the victims for fear of revolting or even boring his readers. One last casualty of Nero's killing spree deserves our attention. 
In addition to exposing Piso, Natalis let fall the name of a man who had loomed large in Nero's life even before he came to power and colluded with the emperor in perhaps his most heinous offense, the murder of Agrippina, Seneca. We'll hear about the philosopher's unhappy fate after a quick break. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about a splendid podcast that anyone who loves art and history should listen to. Fittingly enough, it's called Art of History, and it's hosted by Amanda Matta, an art historian and museum educator who really knows her stuff. I've listened to Art of History for a while now, and I love it. Part of what makes this show so excellent is that Amanda takes you deep into whatever it is she's talking about. Each episode is structured around a single work of art, a painting, a sculpture, and sometimes a building, and Amanda effortlessly fills 50 to 60 informative minutes about that artwork, exploring what it reveals about the past as well as why it resonates with the present. One of my favorite episodes is called The Baroque Bearded Lady, Magdalena Ventura. It revolves around a portrait of Magdalena Ventura, a woman who attained celebrity in early 17th century Italy as a natural wonder for her bushy beard. While discussing this portrait, Amanda tells you both about Ventura's incredible life as well as that of the picture's painter, Giuseppe de Ribera. Art of History covers work from a wide array of time periods, so there's tons to learn. I've heard Amanda talk about depictions of Christine de Pisan, the first medieval European woman to make her living as a writer, a controversial 18th century portrait of Queen Charlotte, as well as the life and work of abstract expressionist Mark Rothko. So if you're into art and history, you should get into Art of History. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. It had taken little to damn the philosopher in the eyes of the emperor. Earlier that year, as the conspirators were seeking to expand their numbers, Piso dispatched a messenger to Seneca, hoping to recruit him. Once the courier had divulged the plot, the silver-tongued Seneca replied in slyly equivocating fashion, managing to signal neither support nor opposition. Instead, he told Piso by way of his messenger, "'My well-being depends on your safety.'" No matter how carefully Seneca weighed these words, they screamed treason in Nero's estimation, and he saw little reason to show their speaker mercy. Besides, Nero's affection for his sometime tutor, surrogate father, and shrewd advisor had waned even before his retreat from politics, partly because he and other Stoics like him with their schoolmasterly stuffiness disapproved of the emperor's forays into arts and athletics. Mulling things over, Nero commanded that Seneca commit suicide. A short while later, the philosopher heard a knock at his door. Part of him probably expected what was coming. A centurion entered and made him aware of the emperor's orders. Accepting his fate, Seneca inquired if he might first have a look at his will, apparently with an eye toward deeding his assets to two close friends who happened to be present. The soldier declined his request, at which point Seneca turned to his companions and, according to Tacitus, explained that he could leave them nothing but the imago, the image of his life. Seneca prepared a cup of hemlock so that he could die in imitation of his hero, Socrates, the Greek philosopher who had swallowed the same poison and ended his own life about 450 years prior. For whatever reason, Seneca changed his mind and opted instead for a death more common in Rome. He would open his veins and bleed to death. His wife, Paulina, made ready to accompany him to the underworld. Ancient sources disagree as to whether she chose this voluntarily, unwilling to live life without her husband, or whether Seneca browbeat her into it. 
Whatever the case, they placed their arms side by side, and taking up a blade, Seneca pressed down and drew it over both limbs, slashing himself and Paulina with a single stroke. Death did not come swiftly for the philosopher. When after some time he still hadn't succumbed to blood loss, he cut himself behind the knees and around the ankles to quicken the process. Husband and wife withdrew to separate rooms. The crippled Seneca supported by slaves, freedmen, as well as his friends. Neither wished to witness the other's dying agonies. Against all odds, Paulina survived the bloodletting, having wrapped her wounds with bandages and carried on solo for several years. It's uncertain why she abandoned the suicide pact, but she may have done so realizing that Nero cared little whether she lived or died. Despite his sundry injuries, Seneca persisted. He finally called for the cup of hemlock, still on hand, and gulped it down. He waited for paralysis to overcome him, as it had Socrates when he drank the poison, but it never happened. Foiled again, Seneca had himself brought to his bath, where he drew hot water and immersed himself in it. In the end, the steam suffocated him. Scholars have long puzzled over Seneca's demise as portrayed by Tacitus. The historian's tone remains elusive. Is this a three-act tragedy or more of a parody of Socrates' suicide? There are no clear answers to that one, but many agree that in his last moments, Seneca was mindful of his posthumous reputation. In Dying Every Day, James Rom ruminates on Tacitus's wording when Seneca declares that he can only leave behind the imago of his life. Depending on context, Rom explains, imago can carry multiple meanings in Latin. Like its English derivative, it can denote image or shape. At the same time, it can also signify illusion, phantom, or false-seeming, a figment of the imagination. Based on these various definitions, Seneca was saying that he could bequeath nothing but an image of his life, perhaps an artificial one that he himself was molding as he perished. But what was that image? There's one detail I haven't mentioned yet that strikes me as telling. According to Tacitus, Seneca dictated one last work to his scribes as he awaited oblivion, presumably on morals. Stoics like him advocated reason, virtue, and forbearance, even in the face of insurmountable hardship. By philosophizing even as death bore down on him, perhaps Seneca was crafting an image of himself as the ultimate Stoic, meeting his doom with a level head and searching for truth until his dying breath. There's a nobility to Seneca's final exit in this regard. Then again, it's possible that Tacitus means to cast it as affected and hollow, an imago in the false-seeming sense. The more favorable interpretation of the great sage's suicide has enjoyed a long afterlife. Take The Death of Seneca, a 1612 painting by Flemish Grand Master Peter Paul Rubens, held by the Museo del Prado in Madrid. Featured on the Art of Crime website, it depicts the haggard and bedraggled Seneca standing nearly naked in his bath. Rivulets of blood trickled down his left arm, staining towels held beneath the wound by a servant. At first glance, this is not the Seneca we read about in Tacitus, his legs gashed up and no longer able to support his own weight. This Seneca bears himself up despite the agony, immense though it is judging from the pained look on his face. Yet this Seneca, like Tacitus's, has work to do and intends to do it even as he dies. His eyes are gazing into the distance as if in thought. Beside him, a scribe kneels down with paper and quill in hand, attending to the philosopher's every syllable as he meditates out loud. Even as the life force flows from his veins, the picture implies, he will live on through his last words. In her New York Review of Books article, How Stoical Was Seneca? 
Mary Beard describes this, along with other idealized versions of Seneca's final hour, as, quote, a triumph over death, not a defeat by it, unquote. In the fullness of time, this episode would burnish Seneca's reputation while tarnishing Nero's. After smothering Seneca and the Pisonians, Nero threw himself into art like never before. Indeed, the year 65 AD witnessed a landmark event. Five years earlier, the emperor had instituted the Neronia, a sports and arts festival modeled on age-old Greek precursors and named after Rome's most recent princeps. The festivities would take place every five years, with artists and athletes competing for prizes. The princeps had neither sung songs nor strummed his lyre at the first Neronia. In fact, by 60 AD, when it was held, he hadn't given a single public performance, since the Juvenalia was technically a private event. In the intervening years, Nero had appeared as a Cithorode in Naples, as well as on other regional stages, but he had yet to grace Rome with his Apollonian endowments. By 65 AD, he felt his time had come. Over the course of his reign, the princeps had expanded his array of talents. Now he wrote poetry. Citizens passed along the columned porticos of the Theater of Pompey and crowded together inside to hear him deliver an original mini-epic about the Trojan War. Afterward, an obsequious courtier is said to have stood up and entreated the princeps to give them a song. Nero was all, oh my gosh, this is so flattering, but I shouldn't. I'm just not up to it. Even as he reached for his lyre and warmed up his voice for an ode he had obviously practiced for the occasion. Before long at all, he was fronting the audience, dressed in a Cithero's billowing robe and a pair of high boots, and singing his heart out about tragic Niobe, a mother in mourning for the sudden and violent death of her children. The tale of Niobe is one of mythology's surefire tearjerkers. Surprisingly enough, at these competitions, the first among equals behaved like everyone else. Nero minded the rules like other competitors, never once clearing his throat or sitting down during the performance, lengthy though it was. After he finished, he went down on one knee in a show of humility. The audience exploded with applause, led by the Augustiani, while Praetorian toughs patrolled the crowds, roughing up those who failed to clap loudly enough. It's as if spectators were putting on a show of their own, performing appreciation of Nero's artistry lest they face punishment. Professor of Classical Languages and Literature Shadi Barch has noted this dynamic. In Actors in the Audience, Theatricality and Doublespeak from Nero to Hadrian, Barch calls theater under Nero, quote, a site of a reversal of actor-audience relations, unquote, claiming that Nero effectively trained his audience to become performers. Having savored glory, Nero craved more. He turned his attention to his most ambitious artistic and athletic undertaking yet. He had long yearned to tour Greece, the birthplace of numerous traditions he adored. While he had made plans to take the trip some time ago, they had never come to fruition. Now, at last, they would. This was not a holiday. He would compete in Greece's historic sports and art festivals, and he took this enterprise in deadly earnest. The emperor contacted the proper authorities and made it known that he wished to take part in four sets of games, those at Olympia, Delphi, the Isthmus of Corinth, and finally, Nemea. This was a wish not so easily granted. Each of these took place on its own four-year cycle, and they never would have fallen within the same 12 months. Scrambling, the festival organizers reshuffled the schedule so that all four would occur during the princeps's visit. 
as the date of his departure drew near, he would have felt a mixture of excitement and nerves. For more than a decade, Nero had sharpened his skills as an artist and athlete, and now he had a chance to show what he was made of. Yet he would come home crestfallen if he failed to perform to the best of his abilities. He couldn't have held himself to a higher standard. It was his most fervent desire to earn the title of Periodonikis, bestowed on those who placed first in all four of the Greek games. As he had done in public already, Nero would race chariots and sing with his lyre. Yet he had also extended his roster of skills to include tragic acting. Unlike Scytherodes with their trademark robes, tragic performers donned various costumes based on character, whether male or female, since they portrayed members of both sexes as needed. Beggars wore rags while kings and queens arrayed themselves with regal finery. In further contrast to Scytherodes, actors covered their faces with masks. In most cases, this costume piece would have represented the eyes, nose, and mouth of the appropriate character. Much like today, performers would have made use of props as well. The thespian portraying the central character often appeared with one or two supporting actors who helped tell the story. As in the case of Scytherodi, however, tragic acting competitions were all about displays of individual talent on the part of the lead. As a result, these performances played more like self-contained monologues as opposed to complete tragedies with a full cast. According to historians of Roman theater, Nero may have made several breaks with custom while giving performances. He likely wore a mask resembling his own facial features rather than those of his character, lest it be forgotten that audiences were watching an emperor in action. When he portrayed women, Nero's mask may have evoked the visage of his second wife, Papia. Throughout his many turns in Greece, Nero brandished a scepter at one point and wore chains at another. Yet his were wrought from gold instead of iron, as only befitted an emperor. Ancient sources list a number of characters in Nero's repertoire, most if not all of them derived from Greek mythology. His preference for one role in particular has received more scholarly attention than others. This was Orestes, son of Agamemnon, king of Mycenae. After Agamemnon serves in the Trojan War and sails back home, his wife Clytemnestra slaughters him in his bath like a sacrificial swine. Then she assumes tyrannical control of Mycenae, aided by her paramour Aegisthus. The slain monarch's son, Orestes, is spirited away from his childhood home and ostensibly robbed of his inheritance. Years later, however, he returns to avenge his father's death. In the guise of a beggar, he infiltrates the royal palace and cuts down Clytemnestra along with her bedfellow. The ghost of Clytemnestra summons the Furies, earth-dwelling deities with snakes for hair, imploring them to terrorize her son as retribution. The vile divinities hound Orestes from isle to isle, nearly driving him out of his mind. After many wanderings, Orestes staggers into Athens, where he stands trial for murdering Clytemnestra and is ultimately acquitted. Nero's choice to play Orestes has made historians cringe. After all, both actor and character committed matricide. Every time Nero set foot on stage as the Mycenaean mother slayer, he reminded spectators of the crime they had in common. In so doing, he potentially damaged his own reputation, since many at home and abroad had condemned the murder of Agrippina as an egregious breach of filial piety as well as an abuse of imperial power. Then again, Edward Champlin has interpreted Nero's choice in a more becoming light. In his 2005 biography of the ruler, simply titled Nero, Champlin argues, quote, 
For Nero, the golden key to the story of Orestes was not that he was a matricide, but that he was a justified matricide, unquote. In the myth, Champlin writes, Clytemnestra robs Orestes of his birthright, the Mycenaean throne, at least until he exacts revenge. As a ruler, moreover, she proves a tyrant, and not just that, but a female tyrant, opening her up to intense resentment. By taking the role of Orestes, Nero perhaps implied that he was as much a victim of an overreaching mother as the mythical revenger. He may have also hinted at the suffering Romans would have endured if Agrippina had attained supreme power. As Champlin points out, these sentiments chime with the spin campaign Nero undertook in the wake of his mother's assassination, especially his ghost-written speech to the Senate. As the emperor sang and acted his way across Greece, he practiced good sportsmanship and appears not to have expected special treatment. Okay, he is said to have had a rival put to death and he did talk trash behind others' backs. But he showed respect for his competitors in face-to-face interactions. Much as he had at the second Neuronia, he obeyed the rules like the average contestant and lived in fear of the judges, visibly anxious as he awaited their verdicts. Not that he had anything to fret about. No matter how much he may have desired a level playing field, nobody would criticize the emperor of Rome or even acknowledge a simple mistake. For instance, in the middle of one dramatic contest, a scepter slipped from the princeps's hand and clattered on the floor. After bending over to pick it back up, he resumed the scene. Later, he confided to a fellow thespian that he worried this blunder would disqualify him. The other actor assured him that nobody could possibly have noticed the slip-up. He certainly hadn't until Nero brought it up. Nothing makes Nero's preferential treatment more obvious, however, than the boatload of prizes he took home with him. Not only did he clinch the coveted title of Periodonikes, but he is said to have garnered a whopping 1,800 awards in various athletic and artistic competitions. It'd be like somebody winning an EGOT, the French Open, and the Grand National 400 times in a single year. Nero's junket came to a spectacular climax when he returned home to Rome. He modeled his homecoming on the triumphal procession. In your typical triumphal procession, generals fresh from successful military campaigns entered Rome and rode through the streets on a chariot. Meanwhile, other parade marchers carried tablets inscribed with the names of conquered cities, while battle-tested warriors trailed behind their commanding officer, reminding spectators of all who had risked life and limb for victory. After passing beneath the triumphal arch, the fighters proceeded to the Temple of Jupiter, patron god of Rome, on the Capitoline Hill. Nero's procession played more like a parody, or maybe self-parody, I don't know, than an homage to the venerable custom. In this circus of self-aggrandizement, somebody bore tablets with the names of athletes and artists he had routed rather than military opponents. Instead of Nero's foot soldiers, the Augustiani brought up the rear, earning their paycheck by extolling the emperor's awesome talents. In Cassius Dio's account of the event, the Augustiani raved, Hail to Nero, our Hercules! Hail to Nero, our Apollo! The only victor of the grand tour, the only one from the beginning of time. In a final departure from the triumphal procession, this most glorious Herculean Apollo rode his chariot through a breach in the walls and then skittered his way not to the temple of Jupiter, but to that of Apollo, patron god of music and various other arts. In the words of Miriam Griffin, Nero's biographer, quote, this was the triumph of an artist, unquote. She also refers to it as his last great show. 
As the gods on Olympus already knew, his days were numbered. Around March 20th in 68 AD, the ninth anniversary of his mother's killing, Nero received reports of a revolution in the provinces. He was in Naples and, deeming the threat negligible, elected to stay there. Before long, however, a new development ruffled his feathers. The Spanish governor, Galba, a general in his 70s who still knew how to throw down on a battlefield, had joined the insurrection. Charging back to Rome, Nero tried and miserably failed to rally his troops and quash the rebellion. Many no longer wanted to fight for the princeps because they held him in contempt. Among other outrages, his artistic endeavors had grown ever more at odds with the day-to-day work of, well, governing since he swept the Greek games. In preparation for future performances, he refused to speak publicly lest he harm his godlike pipes. He delegated speech-making and issuing commands, even to the Praetorians, to other officials. In those situations where it was absolutely necessary for him to make remarks, he insisted on having his vocal coach present to rein him in to avoid overtaxing his voice. No less preposterous was an upcoming performance, in which Nero, dressed as Hercules, would tame a lion. An actual lion. For maximal effect, the beast had been trained not to resist when the emperor put it in a chokehold. The stunt probably would have killed him if he had lived long enough to give it a go. As spring turned to summer, the rebels gained ground. Nero's allies dwindled in number until hardly any remained. Panicking, he prepared to abdicate, hatching a number of conflicting plans. Maybe he would convince the Praetorians to accompany him out of Rome in a ship. He could seek asylum with the Parthians, or head for Alexandria and pursue a glamorous stage career. He entertained darker possibilities, too. What if doom was inevitable? If he had to die, would it be by his own hand or an executioner's? He inclined toward the former and turned to Locusta, the resident druggist who had cooked up the poisons that took down Claudius and Britannicus alike. From her mortar and pestle came another toxin, which Nero stashed in a golden box, just in case it came to that. However, as he slept in fits and starts one night, his bodyguard removed the container and defected from the palace. Finally, on June 9th, the Senate voted and proclaimed the invading Galba the new princeps of Rome. At the same session, they called for Nero's execution. Despair rushed over him. Determined to die, he searched the palace for a swordman who could take his life for him. To his horror, he found its halls virtually deserted. Have I then neither friend nor foe, he demanded of the silent, unpitying walls. As it happened, he did have a friend. Nero cried out again, and this time, a freedman named Phaon appeared, proposing that he leave the palace and seek refuge at his country villa. Nero accepted and, saddling up, traveled to Phaon's estate in disguise. Three or so years earlier, the princeps had envisioned a 100-foot statue of himself, as if he were a god. Now, he was an outlaw, and he would die like any other mortal if the authorities caught up with him. Lying on a thin mattress at Phaon's dwelling, Nero realized that running was futile. His pursuers would hunt him until they had his head on a stake, and he informed his entourage that he would take his own life. They dug a shallow grave while Nero wailed and wallowed in self-pity. He had brought two daggers with him, yet lacked the resolve to unsheath either and put them to use. He vacillated, losing the will to kill himself one moment and regaining it the next, especially when his companions reminded him of the punishment that lay in store for him. 
the Senate would have him killed in the ancient fashion, which entailed executioners forcing his neck into the fork of a tree and bludgeoning him to death with heavy rods. Then, his mangled corpse would be cast from the Tarpian Rock, a fate reserved for the most infamous criminals. Still, Nero hesitated. Only when he heard the hoofbeats of an approaching cavalry unit intent on his capture did he overcome his fear. He drew one of his daggers and stuck it in his neck. Though painful and messy, the wound had not killed him. It seemed as if the squadron would detain him alive. One of Nero's freedmen stepped forward and put the wretch out of his misery, taking hold of the blade and driving it deeper to ensure it would sever his carotid artery. This is loyalty, Nero sputtered as the life oozed out of him. Moments later, a guardsman stormed in as Nero lay dying. The soldier attempted to tend to his injury, but aware that he was done for, the fugitive gasped simply, too late. Those were to be the odious emperor's last words. They're far from famous, but others he uttered before heading off to Hades certainly are. As he watched his subordinates dig his final resting place, he grieved for the future of the Roman stage. Between anguished sobs, Nero lamented, What an artist dies in me. Next episode, we leap forward to Nazi Germany and talk about a painter who was implicated in a plot to assassinate Hitler. You've been listening to The Art of Crime, created, written, and narrated by yours truly, Gavin Whitehead. Liam Bellman Sharp edited sound and composed the score. Last but not least, a thousand thanks to research and production assistant Ken Symphonies. The Art of Crime is part of the Airwave Media Network. To find out more about their excellent programming, visit www.airwavemedia.com. If you like what you heard on The Art of Crime, please tell the world, by which I mean everyone you know, plus the occasional stranger. Also, if you can, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It goes a long way in helping others find out about the show. Finally, all throughout history, artists have relied on the support of patrons to make their work. The same holds true for podcasters making shows about historical artists, so please consider making a donation at www.patreon.com slash artofcrimepodcast. Every bit counts and is massively appreciated. As a reminder, be sure to check out the Art of Crime website at www.artofcrimepodcast.com. It features all kinds of images relevant to the show, including maps, drawings, paintings, photographs, sheet music, and more. You can also follow us on Facebook at Art of Crime Podcast, Instagram at Art of Crime Podcast, and Twitter at Art of Crime Pod. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, please don't hesitate to drop me a line at artofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time.